we actually do more than just tattoos from exploitation and trafficking. We cover and remove gang tattoos from former gang members. Awesome. We also cover up self-harm scars. We also, people that have been using IV drugs that are left with scarring and bruising from IV drug use, we help cover those up. Regardless of the trauma of the depths of desperation these people in, you are trying to cover up the things that they have to look at on themselves so they can change the ugliest time of their life into something pretty. Mm -hmm. So that they can get past the daily reminder on their own bodies of their own trauma. Yes. It's phenomenal, Jessica. Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, and I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part unintentionally led to an Oscar for the film about our team. It's called Undefeated. I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits using big words that nobody understands on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me deciding, hey, I can help. That's what Jessica Lamb, the voice we just heard, has done. Jessica is a survivor of child molestation and human trafficking and she's transformed all of that pain into purpose. Her nonprofit, Atlanta Redemption Inc., and their network of 80 tattoo shops across the country have helped 673 people get tattoos removed and covered up that were from, get this, their sex traffickers, gangs they were in, during times of addiction or even self-harm. This and their Beyond Ink services are changing lives. I cannot wait for you to meet Jessica right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the back seat. Hi, right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. 
as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Jessica Lamb, welcome to Memphis. Hey, thanks for having me. Can't wait to talk about the work you do, but there's a lot to unpack to for our listeners to understand the work that you do. But before we even get into it, um, fair warning, this one's gonna maybe make you cry. This one's going to uh, probably have you question all kinds of things about the reality of our society. And, um, you know, buckle up and brace because as, as, as far and deep as Jessica goes with me today, um, I don't want to pull any punches on this because as we, as you today sit in your car listening or jogging around the track with your headphones in or on an airplane or wherever you're listening to me now, it is likely that you are in a safe environment um, and have at least uh, enough income and enough, uh, you're blessed with enough that you can afford whatever device you're listening to us on. And we are not often reminded um, about the situations that, that exist 10, 15, 12 miles from us where people are living in not only abject poverty, but um, circumstances that we don't really even want to imagine. And Jessica serves people from those very realities and was once herself part of that. And we're going to unpack it all. So buckle up and uh, hopefully you'll learn something from Jessica's story and her heart um, and what she does now. So let's start off. Uh, tell me how you grew up. So I'm one of four kids, and I grew up in a two-parent home. My dad served in ministry. He's also, um, I grew up Messianic Jewish, so my father's Jewish and my mom. Okay, hold on. Messianic Jewish is not what many people get, because Messianic Jewish is like kind of, it's it's Jew-ish and Christian-ish <laughs> and jumbled up and combined into a faith, Right. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> unpack that for a minute for us. Just give us the elevator pitch on Messianic Judaism. Well, I I grew up in a Pentecostal church or Assembly of God church, but my father grew up Jewish, and so I had an interfaith type of home environment. So we celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah, Passover, Rosh Hashanah. So we celebrated both holidays in one home. But I grew up in an evangelical or a Pentecostal church. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So you're one of four. One of four. Young, where do you fall in pecking order there? So I have an older brother, and yeah. then I'm the second, and then yeah. I have a younger sister, and then a little brother. Got it. 
All right. And so you grow up in this this home of four and connected mom and dad and mm-hmm. church There's- going. What's dad do for a living? Well, my dad's in sales, but he was also a pastor. So he Oh, so he wasn't a lay person. He was actually clergy. Yeah, both of them worked in ministry. both my parents worked in ministry and also did missionary work. We did a lot of stuff on the streets of Atlanta throughout my whole life. Even at a young age, I grew up doing outreach. Um, my parents instilled that in us when I was very small. I actually was sharing the story earlier with somebody um, on my way to the airport that when I was seven years old, my parents gave me a brand new bike for Christmas. And it was the bike that I had always wanted. But there was nothing wrong with my bike that I had before. And so I knew that we were going to be going downtown and doing outreach that week. And I was like, Dad, I want to give my bike my brand new bike to one of these kids. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, absolutely. So I ended up giving my brand new bike that I had gotten for Christmas to a kid on the streets. And um, my parents went back and got me another, you know, brand new bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds, that sounds a little bougie, but I just, um, <laughs> I just thought it like, it's something that has always stuck with me. And even when I was on the streets, um, I've always had a heart to help people. Like even when I was in my own mess, I always tried to find ways to help somebody. And so um, it's just been instilled in me at a young age, and my parents instilled that in me. Yeah, I mean, if they're missionaries and working on the streets, it just becomes part of your nature and who you are. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, you ended up on the streets. But right now we're seven years old living in this organic family that seems like it's perfect from the outside. Yeah. But – it wasn't. Um, I experienced some, I mean, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, yeah. So at 14, we were always opening our homes up to people in need. So if there was like a, a family that was in crisis or a family that was homeless or in need of some help, my parents had a big enough house to be able to, you know, to be able to take them in. And we would, my dad would help them as much as possible And there was one man that they brought in when I was a teenager and my older brother had gone off to Bible college and um, the guy began sexually abusing me and he would sneak in in my room at night and sexually abuse me. How old were you? I was 14. And he was? Uh, Probably in his late 20s. Um, But he was going through a divorce from domestic violence and uh, so he would come in my room. At first it started out with, uh, I can go buy you a pack of cigarettes. You know, like it was almost, it was grooming. Like, I'll buy you a pack of cigarettes. You know, I'll, I'll help you do this. I'll help you do that. I'll, I'll give you a ride. You know, and it was just different things that he would do to get me to be quiet about what he was doing at night. And so I started sneaking out of my house. I started self-harming. Um, well, when you were... <clears throat> all right, for, first of all, let me just say this. I think there's a special place in hell for adults who abuse children. Um, just want to say that. Um, it's, I, I, it's, I just don't, I, I think it's a certain level of evil and probably mental sickness as well. Um, so you're 14 and you're used to your family 
reaching out to people in need, right? So and we actually trusted this man. He actually yeah, so worked a guy in like our, this yeah, guy he worked in our any, church. He worked in the church. Yeah, he was he worked in our church and we he was a family friend and they were trying to help him out and And so initially you're a fourteen year old kid and your parents have always done this work and this is just another person in need and you're trusting. Yeah. I was like, Oh, this is a family friend and it was he just felt like he could prey on me and um, he did. And it started just, I started spiraling. And when I began spiraling, like my grades started going down. I ended up getting kicked out of school for stealing exacto blades from the art room so I could self-harm. Um, so I got, had got sent to alternative school. And so when I went to alternative school, I actually found kids that were like me. But the person that was driving me to my alternative school when I wasn't on the bus to go there was the man that was also sexually abusing me. So uh, you know and in a lot of I've I've heard far too many sexual abuse stories. Um but no two are just alike. Um and you know you're 14, you've been raised by a loving mother and father. You know right from wrong. And this guy starts grooming you, but you get, people got to remember at 14, I remember what I was like at 14. My parents were goobs. They were nerds. They were embarrassing. <laughs> I was trying to break out and become my own person. And so it's really this, it's really this, this, this really risky time for a, for a teen, really 14, 15, 16. You're, you're trying to figure out who you are, but you have no wisdom to compensate for, lots of dangers that come your way. And so I'm envisioning you at 14, this kid in this house. And, um, you know, oh, oh, I, I guess my question is over what period of time from when he showed up until the abuse started? And then what period of time did it start having an effect on your behavior? You see what I'm saying? I'm trying yeah. to unpack the timing of that. Well, I'm, I want to go back a little bit because like I, I was pretty good in school, even though I was I was in special ed classes because I didn't really get along really well with the kids in my classes, and I I didn't want to really do the schoolwork. I kind of wanted to focus on art and drawing all the time, and they wanted me to focus on the academics. And I went to a very one of one of the best high schools in or one of the best schools in in Georgia. Um, I was in a great school district, and I just didn't really fit in with the type of kids that were there. But where I found my place was in music. And so I used to compete through like the fine, the Georgia Fine Arts Festivals and I would sing and I would compete and then compete it, singing yeah, vocally. Vocally, yeah. And I loved it. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to work for Pixar Animation. Like these were my <laughs> these were like my dreams. And I remember right before I went to this um this competition, I ended up losing my place because I got so nervous because of what was going on at home and I was pacing the stage. And so I lost points because I was like dealing with a lot of anxiety and I was like harboring this secret. And so I was pacing the stage during the competition. And so the judges knocked off points for that. And I ended up losing out on nationals because the gentleman was actually there in the audience. And I was very, very nervous because he was there. And I ended up losing out on my opportunity to compete nationally. But singing was like 
my thing. I loved it. And so, yeah, that, that one, that one was painful. So but, uh, how long did you keep it a secret? I kept it a secret for a few months and then I got in school suspension for smoking cigarettes because the guy was giving me cigarettes and razors to, to self harm and just to keep me to be quiet. And so I got caught with cigarettes and went in school suspension, passed a note to a kid in the class. And I was like, Hey, this is what's going on at home. You told a kid in the class. You didn't yeah. tell your parents first. Just no. a kid. Yeah. I told a kid was in the class. Was that safer for you? You think? I, I don't know. I just, I passed a note. So tells you how old I am. I, I passed a note to yeah, him. Well, me too. We passed notes to <laughs> yeah, I passed a note to him, and um, I was like, this is what's going on at home. And the teacher saw me, and ISS teacher saw me pass that note and picked it up, read it, and said, take this home to your parents. I want them to know what's going on. Have them sign it and bring it back tomorrow. So I tried to forge my mom's signature. Of course. That's what we all did. <laughs> Tried to forge my mom's signature. It was very obvious um, because, of course, your parents signed stuff at school all the time. It clearly wasn't her signature. And so they ended why, up— Why were you so reluctant to tell your parents? Because it was a family friend, and the guy was telling me—he was like, if you say anything, you're never going to sing again. Because I used to sing in church all the time. You're never going to sing again. No one's going to believe you. Your dad's one of my friends. You're already getting in trouble at school. You know, like, I, I was I was considered, like, the bad kid in my family. Like, I started getting this reputation of being the bad girl. So he was manipulating everything. Yeah, it was coercion. It was grooming, manipulation, all of those things, um, trying to get me to do what he wanted. You've said self-harm a couple of times. Did the self-harm start after all this? Yes. Explain self-harm and why. Because most people listening to us have heard of people. And when you say self-harm and you've said reservoir blades, I assume you were cutting yourself. Yes. Why does someone start? I would, this is a, a complete guess, but um, are you disgusted with yourself? And so you're harming yourself or. I, I, I remember it just feeling like a release. I actually had watched a TV show one day and I saw they, they highlighted it on this TV show and they were trying to bring awareness to it. I watched this girl and she she did it and I was like, maybe that'll make me feel better. And so I remember trying it and then it just became like something that it felt like it was a way for me to just to get out whatever I was feeling inside. I know that doesn't, it might not make sense, but to me at the time it made sense and it was something that made me, it was like smoking a cigarette or, or like just getting some type of relief. And this guy was providing you not only with cigarettes, but was with, not only grooming and manipulating you, but he was actually providing you with razor blades to hurt yourself. Yes. Because when my parents started noticing I had some cuts, things started, they started hiding things that you know, when I could hurt myself with. And so the guy would, I used to have this little zebra print uh, makeup bag that would sit on my dresser and he'd be, he'd be like, it's in the zebra bag. And so I'd open it up and there would be cigarettes and razor blades. And was he sneaking in your room at night? And he was, yeah. He would sneak in my room at night. He, he slept in the room across from me, which was my brother's room. So when he was away at college, he was renting that room from my parents. And so he would sneak in and sexually abuse me. So I started sneaking out my window because I knew when he was coming in. So then I would be getting caught sneaking out. So you were getting away from him, but now you're getting in trouble for being this bad kid. Yep. 
So like, so you've got no way to win. Yeah. I was basically, I was You're like, in jail. Yeah, I was, I was just stuck. I was like, I am, I was scared to say something to my parents and, and you were probably at 14 manipulated enough to actually believe what he was saying was true. Yeah. I was like, there, Oh, I don't want to, you were already the, you were already kind of the black sheep. Because you're artsy and all that, <laughs> right? No, for real. And you said, well, I was kind of considered the bad kid. So you're already up against that. Now you're getting abused. Now you're getting manipulated. A 14-year-old kid get manipulated by a 30-year-old guy. That's, you know, you can certainly see that. And then you have nowhere, you feel like you feel like you have nowhere to go. So you get out of your room to get away from this abuse and by getting out of the room to get away from the abuse, now you run away from home sneaking out at night, which makes you even a worse kid. Yeah. And so then I started hanging out with kids that were smoking pot. And so like I was like, oh, now I got self-harm. I got smoke pot, smoke cigarettes. And I was and so like I was just building this bad girl persona. Like I, I just began like I stopped, you know, doing good in school. I stopped singing. I my art declined. I started writing really, really dark poetry. I love to write. And um, my my parents were like, what is wrong with our kid? You know, like, and, but when I brought that note home, um, when they, they actually called my parents and they said, they told them like, hey, this is what Jess is saying. And my dad set me down in our living room. And I remember I was sitting on the, on the fireplace hearth or um, on the seat of the fireplace. And he looks at this man and he goes, are you touching my daughter? And he goes, no, you know, she's lying. You know, she's doing all this stuff. And so he completely like was like, absolutely not. And my dad looked at me and he's like, why would you, why would you say that? And then something clicked in my brain. I was like, wait, I don't want this guy to be homeless. Like, like that's the first thing that pops in my brain is not me and advocating for myself, not dad help me. It was, I don't want this guy to be homeless. So I looked at my dad and out of my mouth, I said, I made it all up. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not true. It's, it, it's not true, dad. I'm sorry. I made it all up. And so, of course, that continued to build up the bad reputation of me being the bad kid. Did it embolden this man to continue with the behavior? Yes, he continued the behavior and he was like, don't try to pull that again. I'll take away your cigarettes. Uh, you know, like he just, he was just constantly doing this. How so long did you live like this? He was doing this for about a year. You lived in that house with that going on for one year. Mm -hmm. Nonstop. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're perpetually falling down a spiral of just dark, dark, dark. I'm so sorry. The the uh, the depth of that, the reality is, although at that time, I know you felt like you were all alone in the world, the truth is, which we'll get to, unfortunately, this is not that uncommon a story in our society, is it? I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm so sorry that you're crying. I just... It's very brave of you to share this. Um, people need to hear it. People need to understand that there's people like this all over the all over the country. Kids dealing with this. It's fine. I promise it's good. <laughs> Dude, I'm good. Yeah. You sure? Yeah. I can't share my story without crying. It's impossible. I, I can't. I can't. I, I get it. Um, so. It's hard for me to hear it without crying. 
And now a few messages from our generous sponsors. But first, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the newest episodes in your library every week. And also, please consider signing up to join the Army at normalfolks.us because together we can improve this country. And you'll also receive weekly email updates about the Army that you can even read. Guys, we'll be right back. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But yeah, I, I I lived like that for about a year, and so now you're 16. Yep. So now I'm 16, and I ended up um, dropping out of high school. And when I dropped out of high school, my parents were like, "Well, you have to get your GED." And because I had just completely threw my academics out the window, like I had like the education of a sixth grader, like I or or a ninth grader or whatever. I just you know, I just didn't, I couldn't even pass the GED. And um, I took it multiple times. I tried to get a job busing tables as a waitress and like just everything was just dead end. And they were like, if you've got to get a job, well, I can't get a job without a high school diploma. I can't pass the GED. So I'm like, dang, dude, like I'm stuck. And I ended up getting in a really bad fight with my dad. And he found cigarettes in my room and um, money had gone missing in the house and he thought that I had taken it. And 
in like, I swear to this day, I'm 38 years old. I never took that money. And uh, he was like, you got to get out. He's like, I'm tired of all this craziness. I'm tired of this, this and this. Get out. And so I was like, fine. And so I left and I actually moved in with my Meemaw, who is still alive today. Your so Meemaw she, is a grandmother. Yes, my Meemaw is my grandma. And okay. she's, she's my freaking hero. But um, I'll get to that today, too. But um, I, I moved in with my Meemaw for uh, a few months. And my dad was like, I think you might be a little too much for your grandma to, to live in her house. So why don't you come back? We'll try this again. So at 16, I came back. Um, and then I just kept getting in fights. I tried to get that GED again. I couldn't get any kind of stable job. And I started flipping through this paper. It's called Creative Loafing in Atlanta. It's an art magazine. And I'm into art and music. So I'm looking for jobs. And there was a want ad in there. And it said uh, there was a customer service representative job open with free room and board. And I was like, I'm going to show the world that I can get a job. I'll have my own place before my high school class even graduates. And so I called this phone number and a lady answers. And I tell her, I was like, man, I'm not getting, I'm not getting along with my folks here. I was like, I know I'm young. I was like, but, you know, I'm, I'm out of school. I'm trying to get my high school diploma. And I was like, I just need a job. And she's like, oh, we always have openings. And I was like, Cool. I was like, I can, I can work a telephone, you know, I can do that and I'll have my own apartment. Like, cool, this, this works. And, um, I was like, well, let me, let me think about it. And so it took me a couple months, gotten another really bad fight with my dad. He finally had had enough of me and he was like, get out. He's like, I'm done. So I was like, fine. And I left, stayed with a friend from my church one night. And, um, I thought, I had it made because, like, he he worked at this studio um, in Atlanta, a music studio, and I hung out with him. And the next day he's like, he throws $20 on the coffee table, and he's like, here's some gas money. You can't live here. And I was like, what? You know, where am I going to go? Because I didn't want to be a burden on my grandmother. I couldn't go home. So Was I, dude still at home, the abuser? Yeah, he was still in the house. Oh, for God's sakes. Um, he ended up leaving, but he was still in the house when I was going through this. So um, I uh, I called that ad. I, I called the ad in the paper, and I was like, hey, I got $20 to my name. And I remember driving to Chick-fil-A off of Druid Hills in Atlanta, and I got myself a chicken biscuit, put the rest of it in my gas tank, bought a pack of cigarettes. I had someone go in and buy me a pack of cigarettes. And then I drove out to Griffin, Georgia, where I met this man at a gas station. And he was like, he was standing out there. And I was like, where's your car? It's in the shop. And I, he's like, the house is just right down the road. And I was like, okay. Like, I am naive. Can I cuss on here? Yeah. I am naive as All right, I'm a teenager. You know, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And so I'm like, And cool. <laughs> you're traumatized. Yeah, and I've got trauma and... I don't know where to go, and I just felt completely helpless. So I go to this house, and I walk in, and it's pretty empty, except for there was two other young ladies in the house. And I hear the door shut behind me, and I'm like, this doesn't feel right. I was like, something's not right here. And I remember just feeling completely cold. And I turn around, and he looked at me, and 
he was very direct with his intentions. And um, which were what? He was like, "You're gonna do this, this, and this." What is this, this, and this? You're basically sex work. He was like, "You're going to go on these calls with this girl. Her name. We'll just call her for radio's sake. We'll call her Tiffany. You're gonna go on these calls with Tiffany, and you're going to service, and you're gonna do this, this, and this." So, you know, I just I don't want to be too okay. Okay, I'm sure. I, yeah, I'm like I don't think. No, that, we're, that, there okay. <laughs> we're there now. We're there now. Yeah. So, um, and I was like, you're you're going to go on calls and you're going to see Johns. And yeah, I'm you're gonna going see to see Johns. Do what yeah. you're asked to do. Yeah. Sexually. Yeah. And and the, the sexual abuse from the man that was living in our house, it, there was never intercourse. It was just you know touching and molestation and things like that. And so when I met my trafficker, I was a virgin. So my first call, I remember walking down the hall of the hotel and um, I remember uh, going in there with Tiffany and I was like, I don't know what to do. And I was, I was shaking. I was like, I don't, what's on the other side of that door? You know, I had like, I had no idea. And she's like, if you tell Cy, which, which was what my trafficker called himself, you tell him that I did this. We're both going to be in a lot of trouble. And so she took my first call for me. She's like, I will not do this again. You have to do this or, you know, this and this will happen. And so I was like terrified. And so she took my call for me, made 300 bucks within like an hour. And I was like, I actually thought that I got to keep that money. Like, <laughs> I actually thought that, that money went in my pocket. So I rem she handed me the money and I was supposed to hand it over to Sai. And I'm um, actually call him K on the internet, but um, I hand my or I had the money in my pocket, and he's like, "Where's the money?" And I was like, "I have it." I was like, "I did it," you know. Or and I was like, "It's my job. It was my call." And he's like, "No, honey, that's not how this works." And so I ended up having to. I took the money out of my pocket. And I tried to give him half of it, and he's like, "No, I get all of that." And he's like, "I'll hold on to it, and I'll give you money at the end of the week." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And so, like, it was call after call after call until, like... How old are you? At this point, I'm 17. Okay. So um, all of this is rape. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do any of this. And so it was just... You know, people would say, well, you're 17 years old. You yeah. know what you're doing. You want to answer yeah. that? Uh, by the way, <laughs> before you reach across the table and slap the crap out of me, I'm playing devil's advocate and teeing this up for you to answer that. Because some people will say, 17 years old, 18 years old, trouble girl, yeah. you had a car, you could have got in it driven away, and they don't understand the mental manipulation and the and the and the power that these girls give into and the fear. Can you speak to that? So I, people ask me this question. They say this a lot to me. They were like, well, 16 is age consent or 17 is the age of consent. And I was like, I didn't consent to any of it. And I did have a car and I could have left, but I didn't have anywhere to go. And there was so much mind. God, this is such a bad word, but there's so much mind and manipulation and, and, like, basically, he was like, your family's not going to take you back. That's why you're here. You know, you can't. You know. So you went from one manipulation and grooming in your home 
to another level of manipulation and grooming yeah. by a professional yes. trafficker. Yeah. So he's like, you have nowhere to go. I know where your parents work. I know where you live. He's like, you're going to work for me. You're going to do this. And so like three months in, I mean, yeah, I could have gotten in my car and left, but like, where was I going to go? Like, I, I didn't have any friends to go to. I couldn't have stayed with any of my friends. I didn't have... Um, I didn't want to be a burden on my grandmother because that's always what was sticking in my mind is like she's older and she was a widow. And I was like, I don't want to keep having to go back to her and put more on her. And I knew I couldn't go home because I knew I was just going to get kicked out again. So I was like, where am I going to go? So I stayed, not because I wanted to, it's because I didn't have any options. We'll be right back. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. There, about three months in, he was like, you know, you're not giving me any trouble. So he's like, I want you to show me that you're loyal to me. He's like, I'm going to take you to this tattoo shop down the road. And uh, we're going to tattoo you with the same thing that Tiffany had. So I go into this tattoo shop and I was like, I'm not even old enough to get a tattoo. In the state of Georgia, you have to be 18 to get a, to get a tattoo in a professional tattoo shop. And he's like, oh, the guy, the, the, um, the artist had a fetish or a fantasy of getting oral sex while tattooing someone. So Tiffany gives him oral sex in exchange for my tattoo. And I was tattooed on my wrist and on my backside. At this one time? Yes. At the same time? At the same time. So I had this tattoo on me, on my wrist and on my backside. 
and I felt disgusting. And you I were was also like, branded. Yeah, I. I mean, yeah, people you became do, property. Yeah, people refer to it as branding, tagging, um, tattoos. But usually, sometimes when people hear branding, they think of burns. Like no, but what yeah. I'm saying is, uh, we're not going to discuss what the tattoos are, but or were. But the point is, this was m- more and more depth of drawing you into a place you couldn't get out of. And this tattoo was, when I say branding, marking, whatever, it was further connecting you to your, to, to the the trafficker. Yeah. And the trafficker is a pimp basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. He was basically my, my, I I don't, I didn't call him my pimp, but he was my trafficker. Yeah. But I mean, what's the difference in a trafficker and a pimp? I don't see a difference. Me neither. Okay. So, so you I, get tattooed. So I get tattooed and um I felt gross um with this on my body and immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, of course I felt immediately like I'm in a situation that I don't want to be in. I'm with a group of people that I don't want to be around. I'm doing things that I don't want to do. Um Is there drug use involved? No, I did not use any drugs when I was other. I mean, aside what about from them? pot. No, he was pretty particular about us not using any type of drugs. Um, mm. Now there were times that like we would have like uppers, not like like illegal drugs, but like something to keep no dose or yeah, whatever. like no dose or whatever. And then we had things like then we were allowed to smoke pot, and um, but that was it. And then he was very particular about what kind of clients that we saw. Um, uh. It was just, it was literally a nightmare. And I remember- How, the, how many girls? I know you and there was, Tiffany. There was me, Tiffany, and another girl that were in this house together. Did he, quote, recruit them the same way that you got recruited? Tiffany was a bottom. So a what? She, a bottom. Um, a bottom uh, is so his main girl. And so she's the one that recruited me. And then I'm I'm assuming the other girl was recruited by her as well. So when you called up this ad, she's the one that answered thinking you're going to get a job. You were talking to Tiffany. Yes. And they're completely lying to you. Mm -hmm. And then they show you show up and it's everybody's in on it is what I'm saying. Yeah. Everybody was in on it. There was a bunch of people in this house or all three of us were in this house. And then the trafficker's nephew was living upstairs in the apartment taking college classes, which was really weird because, like, he was not on any of it. He was just separate from everything, which I really don't talk about in my story because it's irrelevant to my story. But it's just still it was just the odd. dysfunction. Yeah, it was and very odd. odd. Yeah. Um, Did you ever were you ever there when they tried to recruit another girl? I never saw them trying to recruit another girl. I was only with um, with with Cypher six months. Um. The last night that I was with him, I was on a call and I was in a hotel room and it was across the street from a strip club and I was staying in this hotel. And um, I remember looking out the window and thinking, I bet I would be so much safer in there than I am in here. In the strip club. Yeah. Which there's kind of a funny story that ties into one of my best friends that I now work with, anti-trafficking with, because she was actually leaving that exact club at the same time that I was trying to get out of my hotel room. Wow. So, um, but I remember that night I looked at Sai and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore and I'm not going to. 
And he was like, come again. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I'm not going to. I was like, I want to go home. I was like, I'm 17. I don't want to be here. I want to go home. No one's going to take you back. No one's going to, no one's ever going to want to be with you. You're damaged goods. No one's going to love you. No one's going to want to, no one's going to want to be with your ass. You know, like all kinds of things like that. Just completely stripping away every, dignity. every bit of dignity, every bit of my self-esteem, the things that would come out of his mouth. Like he thought it was always funny and it wasn't, it, it, it was very damaging and I just remember. Well, the farther he breaks you down and the less self-esteem and dignity you have, the more you become his puppet. Yeah. And and the more dependent upon him you are in a weird sense. And he was like, the guys that we, you know, the guys that are calling, they like you because you're younger. The guys that we call, they like you because, you know, you're petite. They like you because of all, all this other stuff. And I was like, he's like, you're making me good money. And I'm like, I'm like. I'm making you good money, but why are we going to Applebee's? You know, like <laughs> if I'm making you good money, why are we, you know, why, why are you making me like do this, that, you know, like it just, it made no sense. And I, I never saw a dime of any of that money. I was going to say, did he ever pay you at the end of the week? No, I never got paid Not for one dollar. No, I never got, I never had any money. So you were working for a roof and some food. Yep. Not even good food. No offense to Applebee's, but it wasn't even good food. Like. <laughs> So oh, I'm, I, 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 I know this is not comical, but I, I know I, I'm, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the way I'm dealing. That's the way I deal with trauma sometimes is I, I, I crack a joke and I know it, it's not a funny matter, but I'm trying, I'm trying to, I get it, push through this interview. <laughs> I, I completely get it. So, so this night you say you're out and he, yeah, he, he got very angry with me and did I was, you ever feel physically threatened? Um, he was never physically violent with us until the night I told him I wanted to leave. Mm. And? The night that I told Sai that I wanted to leave, I was like, I want to get my things and leave. And I was like, I'm 17. I want to go home. And that's what he was telling me, that no one ever will love me and that I was worthless, no good, and all this kind of stuff. And um, he was like, you know what? Go in the house and get your get out. And I was like, whoa, that was easy. You know, like I was like, whew, I felt like this big relief. So I remember walking onto the steps to go get my things. And all I had was like a book bag, um, a couple pieces of jewelry and my keys to my car that he used. And, um, and it's actually my, the car that my grandmother gave me. And um, I hear footsteps come behind me and he came really fast. And I remember turning around and he was coming after me. And I remember I froze and I fell to the floor. And then he took me by my hair and dragged me up exactly 12 flights of steps or 12 stairs. I remember because I counted them. Um, Sai would always say that I was, I'm petite in my height, but he would say that I was overweight. And so he would make me walk up and down those steps every day for exercise because he said that he didn't want any fat girls working for him. So he grabbed me by my hair, and I remember trying to stay present, and I counted each step up to 12, and then so I tried to take my life that night. And I... What? He tried to end my life. How? Um, he pulled a knife on me, pulled out a trash bag, said he was going to cut my tongue so I wouldn't... Um, so I could never speak 
or or say anything about him. Um, but I remember him pulling open this big trash bag saying that he was going to stuff my body in it. And I remember staring at the door to this bedroom that I was in with him and I, rem- I was screaming and he was like, if you don't shut up, I'm going to cut your tongue out. And I remember like, this is going to sound so stupid to some people, but to me, I will never forget it. But I remember like picturing my dad coming in there in a superhero cape <laughs> and getting me out of there. And nobody came. And I, uh, nobody came and got me. And I just fought. I fought like hell. And I started telling him, I was like, I'll do anything. Just don't kill me. And he, um, so he made me give him oral sex. And he was like, you're going to learn not with me. And I was like, I promise I'll behave. I'll be good. I'm sorry. I, I love you. I, I'll be loyal. I won't fight you anymore. Just don't kill me. And he was like, everything kind of calmed down after a couple hours. And, uh, and he uh, was like, I, I ended up falling asleep. And he was sleep. He slept and he had his arm over me. And I remember like I did, I couldn't sleep that well, but I was trying to go to sleep and I remember the next morning I tried to move and I felt him bear down on me and he goes, where do you think you're going? And I was like, I just need to go to the bathroom. And he goes, if you think about leaving, I'm going to put two in the back of your head. And I was like, I'm not going to leave. I love you. I'm loyal. I promised you last night that I won't leave. And uh, I said, I'm just going to go pee and I'll be right back. And I was like, might smoke a cigarette. That's it. And he was like, all right. Wow, y'all. That's just a situation I don't think many of us can ever imagine even being in. And um, we'll hear what happened next in part two. So that concludes part one of my conversation with Jessica Lamb. And part two is now available, which I promise you do not want to miss. And the redemption part of this story is coming soon, guys. I promise. I'll see you in part two. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.